So we are in the book of James, um, and we are taking it piece by piece. Last week, um, we heard Pastor David talk about the law, the, the law of love, um, and how it commands us to uh, love God and love others as we love ourselves. And today, we're going to be looking at um, how, how James continues to illustrate that as he talks through um, what it looks like to love and, and work for God. Uh, so if you'd like to read, you can follow along on the screen, or we're on page 951 in your pew Bible. Pew Bible, that's funny. Um, daring to make a joke about that later, along with my height. So let's read God's Word together. What, is, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would speak through me, your servant, today. I pray that you would weed out um, opinions. pray that you would weed out anything that is not of you, that you would use my brokenness to, to proclaim your perfection. Uh, cover me in your righteousness as I try to um, expound upon the ultimate truth that you love us so that we could love others. I pray this in the power of your spirit, in the name of your son. Amen. So this is a pretty well-known verse if you've been hanging around the church for a little while, and if not, that's okay. You'll hear about it. And oftentimes, I hear this verse um, explained uh, wrongly at worst, and in, in at very least misunderstood to a point where maybe they don't really get the whole gist. Oftentimes, this verse is used to uh, rebuke or, or get on to Christians that aren't doing their, their Christian duty. And it's used to maybe attack a little, maybe uh, convict, possibly. Um, but one thing I want to, to focus in on right from the beginning is what James is not saying, okay? Um, I love to dabble with carpentry and metalwork here and there, and uh, I got a lot of tools I've either purchased or inherited uh, from my dad, and one of the things my dad has always taught me about tools is if they are misused, they're dangerous. Used correctly, they, they help you, they aid in what you're trying to do, um, create beauty or fix things, but used incorrectly, they can hurt you, even kill you. I remind myself every time I turn the table saw on that it could cut my arm off and I could bleed out in my shed. No lie, it goes through my brain because I'm like, okay, I'm out here alone. So tools can be helpful and, if not used correctly, dangerous. So I want to make sure that we understand that the Bible is more than a tool. It is not simply a guide. We've heard that before. The Bible is a guide for my life. It's not simply that. It's more than that. It's a living document. It's the Word of God being breathed out by the Holy Spirit through uh, earthly servants that is never changing and always relevant. But it can be used as a tool to help us live for God. So we must handle it and treat it with care and reverence. 
like the sword that it is. So what is James not saying here? James is not saying we have to work hard to earn our faith or have to work hard to justify our salvation. That's what he's not saying. So if ever you're quoted or, or castigated or whatever uh, may happen by someone, probably well-meaning, uh, to encourage you to works, and they say, oh, you better work harder, God's going to be mad at you, understand that that is bad theology. So what we want to do is look at what is James actually saying? Because James agrees with Ephesians 2. It's by grace you have been saved through faith, not a result of your works, so that you may boast. He knows that. He agrees with that. Um, if works were something that earned us anything, then we wouldn't have the account of the criminal being crucified with Christ. It's one of my favorite stories that illustrates that works are not the, the, uh, the way we earn salvation because this dude's nailed to a cross comes to faith in Jesus, and while he's dying there, he comes to life in Christ by placing his faith in him. What does Jesus say to this man? Today you will be in heaven with me. This dude had no time to go out and do church stuff. He had no time to, to go invite people uh, to his discipleship group. He had no time to read his Bible. But yet Jesus says, because of your faith, in me, you'll be in paradise with me. If you want to look at it practically, no matter how hard we try, we can't do enough to earn the salvation that God gives. Jesus illustrates this with a parable of a uh, servant that owes his master 10,000 talents. So to translate that in today's currency, 10,000 talents is roughly 200,000 years of service, billions of dollars. And the, the, the servant comes to the master and says, I, I'll pay you back. And of course the master's like, no you won't. I'll forgive your debt. Because he was gracious, he was merciful. We can't afford the debt that sin brought. But God presents a bailout. See, salvation requires forgiveness of sin's debt. It's an act of rescue of our spiritual bankruptcy. We are not the rescuers. God is. No matter how hard you pull on your bootstraps, you're not working yourself out of that debt. We have to go to the king, the holder of our debt, and he has to forgive that debt for us. And Christ the King is the only one who has enough wealth to forgive every single human's debt if they would just come to Him. So today, we're going to look at this reality of, of what Christ provides for us in living faith. And I could probably just stop there and say amen, and that'd be the shortest sermon ever, and you would go away happily, but I must continue. So what is James teaching here? So let's read the text again. Verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And those are strong words. Like James is not holding punches here. And he may be speaking directly to a culture that's broken in his church and around his church. He's definitely speaking to our culture today. His words are just as relevant today as they were when he wrote them. So we've got to ask the question, what is James saying? I think we could rephrase um, faith it's by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead, differently. We can say, we can ask the question, what is a living faith? If a dead faith produces no works, well, what is a living faith then? That's helpful. Let's, let's dig into that. So James has been describing a living faith from the beginning of his letter. Um, and he gets to his definition in verse 27. He says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So that's his kind of operating definition that covers everything he talks about when he talks about faith, a living faith. So this definition has two parts, a description we can think of that as who we are, and then actions, what we do because of who we are. So we're going to take, um, oh, lost my place, sorry. We're going to take the description first. Who are we? One that is pure and undefiled before God. Sorry. A pure and undefiled faith has God sitting squarely upon the throne of the heart. So we are pure and undefiled if God is sitting on the throne of our heart. Pastor David last week talked about um, whatever it is that is vying for the throne of God, you have to fight it, you have to uh, push it off, you have to kill it if necessary so that there is room for God to sit on that throne and be your king. And that is how you um, become pure and undefiled before him, when he is your king. This is the royal law. Only God deserves to be king of our hearts. So before we get to the what should we do because of that part, I want to define works. Now this is my understanding as I read James of what uh, works is according to him. Um, doing the works of God is the grateful response to God's mercy and gracious rescue of our souls. So it's, works are a response to an action. Um, so as we, as, as God sits on the throne of our hearts and we understand more and more about him, um, our gratitude to him deepens. And when our gratitude deepens, um, our want to do what he uh, asks us also deepens, enlargens. We want to please this king that has come to rescue. We want to show him worship by, by living for him. James lists out a bunch of stuff that, that describes a life that is wanting to do works for God. Um, he starts in, in the first few sentences of chapter 1, having joy in trials that leads to endurance, seeking wisdom from God, having faith amidst your doubts, fighting doubt with your faith. Boasting in Christ instead of your earthly wealth or statue or smarts. 
being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, avoiding filthiness and wickedness and receiving meekness through knowing God's word and will for your life, being doers of God's word and not just hearers, showing no partiality, but loving others as much as we love ourselves. And that flows through knowing that God loves us and has created us to be who we are. So as we continue to explore James' message to us today, let this kind of this, this definition of words kind of sit on your brain. Um, we should also understand that a lack of works is a symptom of dead faith, not a reason for it. So I'm going to say that again. A lack of works is a symptom of dead faith, not the reason for it. Because if we can't work to earn faith, then, then we can't say that if we don't have works, there is no faith right? So the cure for dead faith isn't trying to do more works to please God. Faith isn't something to be earned. It's a gift. It's given. To enliven faith, we must go to Jesus and take the life that he is offering to anyone who would come. So when we follow Christ, getting back to James's definition, our lives and the way we live come alive and become life-giving. So it's not, I work hard, so God loves me. It's, God loves me, so I want to work hard. See how that's different? The work is on the front side, trying to get God's attention and affection. That's not how it works. How it works in our economy on earth, it's not how it works in God's economy. He doesn't need our love and affection. He's complete without it. But he wants you. He wants you to love him. So he shows his love first, and as he does so, that affection brings gratitude and trust, and from that loving relationship comes the will and the want to do the works of God. This is what James is getting at. So as God's people with living faith, we will do what God commands, because we love him. We understand he loves us back. And James says that is to care for orphans and widows, love others, and to strive to be unstained by the world. Love God. Let's pick those apart real quick. When James talks about caring for orphans and widows, uh, you can understand it two ways. Specifically, he's talking literally about orphans and widows of his time. These people um, were very, very uh, vulnerable, and they didn't have protection, and oftentimes they were forgotten or even abused. So, Jesus commands to love people like that, and James is echoing that command in his uh, commanding the church to, to love them. We can also understand orphans and widows generally as simply just people in your life that are either spiritually needy or physically needy or needs a friend. We're called by Christ to come and share the love that he's given us to those people in our lives. So, um, Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what this is, is telling us to do. Two, keeping our faith unstained means to live according to God's commands because he's the true king of our hearts. And we should fight to keep him there. Because he's given the ultimate sacrifice um, to make us his. This is the reason James says to be doers of God's word, not just hearers. 
So Jesus sums up God's word this way. He was asked by the Pharisees who were trying to trick him into sin, um, what is the most important commandment in the entire Bible? If you had to pick one, Jesus, which one is it? And Jesus, knowing what they're trying to do, said, okay, I'll sum up the most important command in the Bible this way. Love your God with your entire self, your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, the Pharisees are like, oh man, he's right, perfect answer. It's kind of like on, on Old School, if you've seen that movie, sorry, Munyan. On Old School, if you've seen that movie, Will Ferrell blacks out in the, in the debate, and then when he comes back to it, he had said some nonsense, and the opposing team's like, man, that was perfect, we have nothing for you. And that's what Jesus did here to this uh, Pharisee. He gave him the perfect answer, and he, the Pharisee's like, I got nothing. And that answer is to love God with your entirety and to love others as yourself. If you do that, you're keeping all of the commands. This is why God's love is, God's law is indivisible. You can't just love God and hate people. That's what the Pharisees were actually doing. They loved God's law because it elevated their trying, their works. But they didn't have to love people because they were getting their works right. You can't separate the two. If you love God from that loving relationship will flow a love for others. Now again, we're not looking for perfection here, we're looking for progress, but you will progress to greater and greater love for God, and through it, a greater and greater love for others. Even your enemies, as Christ loved us from the cross, we have the, the, the power to love our enemies that way. Now I could say from the stage today, I don't know that I have that yet, but I'm progressing towards it, striving to understand how to get there. So the absence of love is an absence of faith. The good work of loving others flows from a living faith. And James is saying that the absence of this love is a symptom of either no faith or dead faith. This is opposed to the world's message today. And, and back then... The world hasn't really changed much. Its language, its marketing has changed a bit. The world tells you, uh, you could be nice, but really the most important person in your life is you. And in the end, that person gets all the attention. And if you have any reserves left over, love other people, sure. Be nice about it. But an unsane faith stands directly in opposition with that message, saying, no, no, no. Loving God completely and striving to love others selflessly is how we're designed to live. And that's hard. It's hard to love others more or love others as much as you love yourself, even the ones that love you back. But even more so the ones that you don't care to love or don't want to love. And the hard message of Christ is he's calling us to love people we don't care to love or want to love. Because what changes hearts? Love. So from the cross, when he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know that they're crucifying me. He's talking to us before he saved us. So as we look at those people that are hard to love, let's remember that Jesus loved us first so that we can now love them first. And that changes hearts. This is the work of God. 
So now that we've established, established what a living faith is, let's, kind of, let's look at why it's important. It's important because lives depend on it. James gives two examples here. The first one's pretty obvious. The brothers and sisters that are lacking shelter and food, if they're not loved by people with a living faith, they starve to death and succumb to the elements. That's pretty obvious. Matter of fact, when you read this verse, you're probably, oh man, that sucks. You don't just say, hey, uh, be fed and well, and then leave. Like, who does that? Well, a lot of us do, every day. But there's another casualty in James's text to us today that it's easily overlooked. I don't think it's easy to miss if you're looking for it, but that is the person with dead faith. And the death that dead faith brings is even more uh, heavy than the, the physical death that may come to those that aren't cared for. It's a spiritual, eternal death that lasts forever. So James is saying, lives depend upon living faith. That is why it's important. He's kind of asking, well, what good is faith if it's all talk and no walk? It's just hot air. If people claim to love but never show love, what good is that? doesn't sound like the church of Jesus to me. So spiritually speaking, his statement is drawing a line in the sand, separating living faith, true worship, and faithless tradition, dead faith. And he wants us to come to a place where we find that true living faith in Christ that changes us to then pursue love even of people that are unlovable. So our love for God and others is proof, kind of like a fruit tree. Got a lot of fruit trees around here, oranges. Uh, the way you could tell what a tree, what kind of fruit tree is, is, is look at the fruit. The way you could tell someone that truly knows the love of God, you look at their life. Does it produce love? Are they loving others like God loved them? Are they striving to do better even though it's hard? Again, I want to stress, not perfection, but progress. Do they love a little more every time they, they get uh, uh, more, more truth put into them after reading the Word? Do they, are they able to be more patient? Are they slower to anger? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that when you um, know the love of God, when co God comes down from his throne and adopts you, he creates you anew, and the old guy is dead, and then there's this new creation in him, covered in Christ's righteousness, that leads you to this type of loving lifestyle, this living faith. So why is living faith important? For us, it brings life. But why else is it important? As we are made alive, that spills out into our families, that goes into our workplaces, our schools, and slowly but surely, that living faith brings others to life, and then our communities come alive. Old school word for that is revival. People are revived in their souls by the gospel, the good news of Christ, through the people of Christ, as they live out and love those that are hard to love. This is a beautiful thing. This is what the church did and went from this weird little Jewish cult to the first foremost religion in the entire world in just a few centuries. Changed communities from changed hearts. 
So my last point, how do we do this? How do we have living faith? We have to be clothed and fed in Christ first. Again, works don't do it. You don't start at works. You don't start with the doing. You start with Jesus who leads you to how to do and why to do. So if you've been struggling with, with this whole Christianity thing, or maybe you, you are a Christian and you're just dusty, you're like, man, I'm tired. Take a look at what you're doing and assess whether you're, you're, you're trying to earn God's favor rather than live within the favor and the love that he's already given you. Or if you don't know God's favor and love, know that he loves you. And my prayer for you right now is that you would go to him like a, a little child goes to the edge of the pool and he looks at their daddy. You'll catch me, right? And the dad, yeah, sure, I'm going to catch you. And they jump. A little afraid, a little scared that maybe daddy won't catch me. Maybe I'm going to land in that water. But trusting enough in faith that as they jump, those hands grab them, pull them in to safety. And then they do it again, and then the faith gets bigger, and then they get more and more encouraged and emboldened to go to their parent. So understand, the first thing we have to do to have living faith is be clothed and fed in Christ. We do that by going to his word, hearing Christians expound upon this in our lives, prayer, and then learning how to walk it out, watching Christians live and then replicating that in a response to the love that's already been given. So as Christ clothes you, become a new creation, like Paul says. That new creation um, affects your mind, your desires, and your will. So this is kind of the, the, where the rubber meets the road. So as a new creature in Christ, you're going to have a new understanding of things. And it'll be weird at first. Like when you're, you're sitting there going, man, I, dude, cut me off. I just want to roll up next to him, roll my window down, tell him what for. But there's something inside you going, no, that's not what you do. Let it go. Maybe if you see that dude in Starbucks, buy him a coffee and say, hey, man, you having a bad day? Maybe that's why he's driving so bad. You'll start to think differently. You'll start to understand love differently. You'll read the, the Bible and you'll start to look at things differently and not see it in, in such a cut and dry thing, but looking at truth from God saying, yeah, this is applicable. I can learn to love those that are hard to love because I was hard to love and Christ loved me. So your understanding of things changes. And then as your understanding of things change, your affection and your desires follow suit. You're going to want to do things like Jesus. You're going to want to love others. You're going to want to do things differently. You're going to want to know what's in here, even though it's hard. And you hit your disciple group or church, you're like, man, I haven't read in a whole week, but I, I like listen to it all the way here, maybe that's good enough. Remember, it's not works, it's love first. But you're going to want to start knowing more about this God that left his throne in heaven, 
came down here and suffered with us. Jesus suffered everything we suffered, even death, so that he could be our Savior. You're going to want to know him. You're going to want others to know him. You may not know how to explain that quite well to them yet, but I bet that the best way to start is by showing them how you've been changed by the love you've received. So your affections, your desires, you're going to look at the stuff that you're, you were hustling for, the, the house, the car, the money, the job, the stature, the whatever, the, re, the retirement fund, and you're going to look at that differently instead of being treasures for you to hoard until you kick the bucket and give it to your kids. You're going to look at those things as tools to build the kingdom of God. Now again, God doesn't hate rich people. He, he, he doesn't like when people worship the God of money. There's tons of rich people in the Bible that God made wealthy. And they used their wealth to build his kingdom. To pursue success with the end goal of building a better community through Jesus. Teach people how to be wealthy, loving Jesus first. And if you're not wealthy, live into that. Be content with what you got. Jesus is the point, though. Check, it, it, it affects, it, it changes our affections and desires. And then our wills. This is the most miraculous piece of this to me because, again, on the front side of faith, it is not our will that does it. It's a miracle that comes down and changes you and from that, your faith begins. So our wills that were once enslaved to sin, meaning we could not help but sin, are now freed. In Christ, through the Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Him from the dead, gives us the same power to withstand and say, not today, Satan, to the sin that's in our lives, and we have power over that sin to rebuke it and not do it. Through the power of Jesus' credited righteousness to us, we can command sin to flee. We're no longer slaves. We are masters of our wills. Now again, not perfection. We, fancy words, sanctification, meaning becoming more and more righteous in Jesus, is a process. In that process, you need to be taught things. You need to have hard knocks. You've got to fail forward sometimes. There's lots of what we call repentance, that is turning from sin toward, toward God. And you need help doing that. That's why we push things like reading your Bible every day, praying, discipleship groups, because you need those communities to have your back. Soldiers don't roll into battle solo. Those are movies. Soldiers have teams. They have strategies. They have training. Ephesians 6, we have to put on the armor of God. And that soldier that Paul is describing was a Roman soldier, and they worked best when they used a phalanx, which is a shield wall, meaning they had a team. So we want you to engage your faith, but with the community. Because you'll have a target on your back. As you live in faith and you come alive, Satan and all the principalities of evil, and that's some of the weird stuff. Like, Wait, what? He's talking about demons, man. They're real. They will strive to knock you down, to get you to question God, God's throne and his seat there and say, no, 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 put money back up there. Money's nicer to you. 
That's why you need your, your kinsmen and your weapons, the Bible, and your armor. So our wills are changed. Faith that is alive brings change. Brings change to the believer. Brings change to the people in that believer's life. And through um, those people, it brings change to the world. So with a new mind, heart, and will in Jesus Christ, let's work out our faith and bring life with us wherever we go. Let's pray. God, today my, my prayer is short and sweet. Be with us. Help us to see and feel your love so that we may work for your kingdom wherever we go. We love you. Amen.